That is quite a text for a group of Christians in 2023 to be looking at on a winter Sunday night. The passage of Scripture deals with how God works his way into the hearts of his people, how spiritual change takes place and how people work in favor of that and with that and how people work against it and prevent it. Working against the purifying influences of the Holy Spirit or working with. The process of, we used to call it revival. It's not a bad word. It just doesn't get used much anymore. Spiritual purifying, renewal. It involves more than just words or the practice of religion. These people are devoutly practicing their religion in terms of waltzing in, offering their sacrifice, and going about their lives. They're doing it. Spiritual renewal never seems to come to the casual or the content. It almost never falls within the patterns of just the routine. Spiritual renewal, revival, it it always comes shattering some of our routines. It, It breaks old response patterns. It almost always humbles us, and it almost always shakes us. This is always the issue issue we have to face. Do you like, in a little while, we'll have what we call our worship time. It's really not the worship time. We all, this is worship as well. In a little while, the team will come out, the band will come, we'll play. Do, do, Do I like just singing love songs to Jesus? Or do I like it when the Holy Spirit puts his finger into my chest and says, become like Jesus, Don? That's what this is about. When the Holy Spirit prods, pushes a little bit. That's the idea in our text. When God speaks through the prophet about launderer's soap, 3-2, and when he speaks about his coming being like a refiner's fire, verse 3. The primary idea that, that is being expressed, launderer's soap, refiner's fire, purification takes place at a deeper level in our lives than the part we see on the surface. Soap, especially really strong soap, works the inner recesses of the stain. It gets right into the fabric. And fire, we all know, changes everything right to the heart when it burns. That's the governing principle in this great passage. It's what gets silver a lump of silver. It's what gets boiled out of the very center of a lump of silver that purifies it. You you can't purify silver with a piece of sandpaper just rubbing the outside. It's what gets boiled out at the very center that totally transforms the substance It's what gets soaked out of the very threads of a fabric that makes a garment fresh and clean. There's there's a certain kind of cleansing work, a renewing work that's being described here. And among the people of God in Malachi's day, so says the Lord, that hadn't happened to everybody that called themselves God's people and 
that was making their way into the temple. They were doing different things. They were doing nice things. They were doing religious things. But if the text means anything, something at the core of their beings hadn't been renewed. Melted down, remade. And until that deep work of the Spirit took place, God just says, it's all words with you people. That's where our passage starts. That's a bit of the background. Here's where our passage starts. There's the description, point number one, the description of this barren religious exercise of theirs, 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, quotes, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, quotes, where is the God of justice? There's two things being dealt with there. The first quote, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. That's the issue of tolerance to wickedness, tolerance to things that God hates, and seeing that kind of tolerance as virtuous. Does this sound current to you at all? That's the first thing that's described here that God says, this just wearies me. The second quote, where is the God of justice? That deals with the problem of evil, silence of God. Why isn't he here? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he bless us? Why doesn't he heal us? Why doesn't he deliver us from our enemies? This tolerance of wickedness, because we tolerate it, God must approve. That's the first thing that wearies God. The second thing, blame. Now, this is the problem where they've resisted and rejected God's revelation, and then they're surprised Where is God? Why isn't he helping us? So that you got these two things, sweet and sour, you know? That's what's wearying God. I know those words are a bit unusual, being that God is both all-powerful and all-patient. We just don't think about him as being wearied with anything. This is the God who who created all the planets and stars in addition to our world without expending any energy at all and not lifting a finger that wearied him. Did all of that. Not weary a bit. These people, God says, you're just wearing me out. (laughs) You people are wearing me out. I can't stand this. Okay, so what is it? What is the cause of God's weariness? And there are two sources that are mentioned in in these verses. So A, they hadn't allowed themselves to be benefited by God's reproofs. God had judged. God had spoken. They had set their hearts to, you can see it in the text, they had set their hearts to argue with God. You talk to us. Here are people, religious people, God's people, who had gradually, without seeing it happen, over time, they had gotten to the place where they could no longer simply listen to God. Think about that. You go through the text and everything God says about them, they've got an answer. 
They're arguing. They, they aren't at the place any longer. Can this happen? You know, you read the wrong books, you get in with a, a wrong crowd, you listen to wrong speakers, you get false teaching into your brain. Can it, can it happen to devote people where now they've just got a wise answer for everything God says? Well, he, no, can't mean that. So they've lost the art of simply hearing, of meekly hearing. They always had a comeback. You can see the pattern in that 17th verse. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, here's the words. How have we wearied him? This, so this is the way they'd come to set the stance of their heart. Everything God says, they've got a comeback. You don't have to say it out loud, by the way, to have a comeback when God speaks. This is the way they come to set their hearts before the word of God, the gradual accrual of an unsubmissive heart and arguing with divine revelation. They said this in their hearts. The attitude is more common in all of our hearts than we know, and it becomes a pattern, like a way of sort of just reflexively responding to anything we don't want to hear from the Lord because of the cost of real purification, real revival, what it might entail, or being called unloving or being called intolerant by the culture around us, whatever it is. These arguments against God aren't the ones a person thinks through in advance. We're aware enough to know it's wrong to talk back to God like that out loud. We know that. But attitudes form. These silent thoughts just seem to line themselves up almost automatically in our minds. They seem to carry a life of their own to still what we know God calls us to in our communion with him. It's kind of the Cold War, spiritually. And the response does get habit forming. I made the re- I wrote down all the references. You can see it in the book of Malachi. Malachi 1 2. I have loved you, says the Lord your God. But you say, How have you loved us? 1 6. And if I am master, where is my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? 1 7 by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? 2.17, you've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? 3.8, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? 3.13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken? Do you see a pattern here? How does that happen? You see that kind of mentally armed stance. They're always ready to talk back, always ready to defend their guilty conscience. That's the spirit of the age. It is spawned by the father of all lies. We call it speaking our minds, sticking up for our rights, having the courage of our convictions, and that's not what it is at all. Just as in the days of Malachi, this self-defensive stance 
It just becomes habitual. Our culture trains us this way. And the book of Malachi is so insightful because it shows us how religious people get trapped by it. It's that death-dealing mindset with which we quickly learn to face a holy God when he speaks to us about a costly change and repentance. And it grows into the automatic response to any who would challenge. Our age of, of talk shows, debates, labor squabbles, protests, the obsessive clamoring of our rights, it breeds the antichrist heart of self-expression into a bad religion. And people in the church, people in the church, I don't mean you, well, you, you ask if it's you. I know I have to look at my own heart. People even in the church get to the place where they can't easily receive any hard truth easily anymore. There's a, there's a, I'm entitled to argue with this a bit. I don't know, no one's going to tell me what to do. I think for myself. That kind of stance. And then not even from our creator. And this addiction to a stance of self-assertiveness and self-defense is the exact opposite of what Jesus talked about where he said, unless, unless you receive the kingdom like a little child, you, you can't. You can't get in. Asserting your own will, you're never going to get in. You just can't make it that way. So remember where we are. The people are wearying the Lord in Malachi's day. And the first thing that wearied the Lord, this argumentative, self-justifying stance. They couldn't just say, yes, Lord, anymore. Always a comeback. I just find it hard to let that go. Like, like pick the situation. Here's a, here's a young man, and he's dating a girl, and she's not a Christian. And, and the Lord speaks and says, you need to listen to me. This isn't the way to go. But, but he loves her. But Lord, but Lord, here there it comes. See? I've got habits in my life, I, I, and I know they aren't right. But... It's just, it's just the way I'm made. I need this, I need that. And see, and you start to answer. There's the comeback. I've got an explanation. That spirit is the first thing in our text that says it was wearying to the Lord. There's a second way. B, the people of God, members, the people of God, not talking about the Babylonians here, you're talking about his own people. They no longer distinguished between right and wrong. They continued to, um, at least an outward physical way, they continued to be interested in God for his blessing on their lives. They continued in their practices, 
But when they looked at the moral decisions of daily living or the values of the surrounding nation or the values of our surrounding culture, they weren't able to say, no, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. 2.17, you've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So, so I already talked about the two, the two areas there. God's, where's the God of justice? His, his silence, his lack of presence, his lack of blessing, and not tracing it back to the fact that they, as a people, weren't distinguishing between good and evil. Not just that. It's not just that they were confusing good and evil. That's bad enough. But what they were doing is they were saying, God doesn't distinguish these things anymore either. Does that sound familiar to you in any way? Everyone who does good, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. We need to understand kind of the setting for those words. They come at the very close of the Old Testament. Malachi is uh, dating by time the last prophet. After these words, God would be, for all practical purposes, silent for a very long stretch, about 400 years before anybody's going to have any kind of prophetic revelation from the Lord again. Remember, there's no text collected the way we have it. God speaks through prophets. And it would all just be silent. The next thing on the agenda for God's plan would be God sending his son into the world. The whole Old Testament is given in preparation for that single event, the coming of the Messiah. And here, here, you have God's chosen people in Malachi's time, after all his dealings with them, after all of his teaching through the prophets, after all of his judgments with the surrounding nations, and they still don't want to listen to God. They still justify their sin. And then later on, after a rousing call to repentance from John the Baptist, he will arrive. And then the incarnation of Jesus, God the Son, that's the next event on the horizon. And these chosen people still choose to continue in their sin. It's amazing. It, it shows you the kind of hold that can get. It wasn't that these people weren't interested in God at all. They were in a sense. And that's why it's important to notice those, the two issues raised by the prophet in 2.17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. And you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, first, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Look at that first question first. These people were quick to complain when God seemed absent, when they couldn't see his blessing on their lives, when he wasn't listening to their prayers. Why didn't his glory dwell in that wonderful new temple they built? Why wasn't he prospering them? They were still God's covenant people. It isn't fair. Where was the God of justice? So in other words, they were keenly aware God wasn't listening to them, but they seemed totally unaware 
that they weren't listening to God and they made no connection between those two things. And the point I want to make, not too much left now, the point I want to make is this. This is the inevitable spiritual blindness that comes from trying to keep in touch with a God you know is holy while persistently organizing your life around your own agenda and your own desires. You will always end up numb and senile to your own sinful condition and bitter towards God. It always works that way. Always. The remedy. Well... Sometimes you say something so much it's hard to say it and think people will hear it. The remedy, of course, is there's an urgency to repent. God's people have to be constantly repenting. The thing is, you can't turn genuine, spirit-fueled repentance on and off at will. If every time God speaks, I've got to come back, even if it's not spoken out loud, then I'll remake God in my own image. Look at that in our text. You have wearied the Lord, 2.17, with your words. And you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Not just that he loves them all, but they're good. Their behavior, it's good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. We talk a lot, don't we, about the cost of following Jesus, and maybe we need to, every once in a while, look at the cost of not following him. If you don't turn in repentance from your sin, if I don't turn in repentance from my sin, I only have one other option for self-preservation, and I have to imagine a God who delights in everyone equally and what they do equally. You, you create a God who never judges, and it, it's just Christianity on drugs. It makes you feel good, but it's not real. <laughs> it's very easy for all of us to do it. And here's why it's easy. It's easy because God's judgment rarely comes immediately upon the commitment of any sin. That's just the patience of God. There's almost always a delay, sometimes a very long delay, and when nothing seems to be at stake, people can easily think righteousness and holiness doesn't matter all that much to God. So let me close. Now I am closing. I'm not kidding. If those words sound like words from a dusty, archaic past, Let's look at what the New Testament says along the same lines. I'm going to read a text. It's a long text. Do you have the 2 Peter 3, 3 to 10 text in your notes? Oh, it's all in there? Sweet. Here's the last days. We're approaching them. We're approaching them. In the last days measured, if you want to measure from Christ's coming, you can do that. Technically, that's correct, the last days. I'm thinking more of the closing days of history is what I'm thinking. 2 Peter 3.3 Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days 
with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Five, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. There's examples of judgment, he's Peter's saying. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The destruction of the ungodly. You see those words? They're not comforting words at all. I wish they weren't there. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Can you imagine after reading all those texts from Malachi? You just wearied me with your words. People have been doing it for centuries since then. And he's patient. Patience of God. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Well, how do they get out of this? Well, that all should reach repentance. You have to repent. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. What's that going to sound like? I hear people on the news sometimes talk about what it sounds like when you're in the basement of your house and there's a tornado coming. And they talk about hearing like it's a train or something. You know, they use these words. What, what, when, the, when, the, when the heavens burn up with a roar. Do you think people are going to dive under their tables? The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So I guess, I guess we need Malachi's warning after all, don't we? I don't want to be one of those. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I say it to me and to all of us. We, we study the Bible a lot in this church. Different ages, different services, different ways. And sometimes the more you think you know, the easier it is to argue with God. Jack Hayford died just this past week. I'll never forget him saying, you know, the secret to anything in ministry, and he's got this 12,000-member church on several campuses. And he says, I try never to forget. I try never to forget that I'm just a child at the feet of Jesus. And you just listen without arguing. Let's always listen to the Holy Spirit without arguing. What do you say? 